A new book reveals how to recognize and defeat the evil of communism and other totalitarian regimes like Putin's Russia. The Triumph of Good, Cain, Abel, and the End of Marxism, with commentary by the author, Thomas Cromwell. Chapter 12 The Communist Seduction Waking Up to a World of Broken Promises The First Section A Predatory and Seductive Ideology As we discussed in Chapter 3, this spirit has its origin in Lucifer's predatory seduction of Eve. The Archangel exploited Eve's goodness and innocence to tempt her into disobedience and a relationship of love that destroyed the divine plan for creation and thus caused the original alienation of human beings from their creator. This was the starting point of evil and the human experience of suffering. We have called the primary manifestation of evil today the two-headed beast of communism. The first head represents a Luciferian idea, person or entity that works to destroy the divine providence through subversion of civilization built on godly values. These are primarily Marxist and neo-Marxist ideologies and movements. The second is governmental regimes that embody this satanic agenda, such as communist China, North Korea, and Cuba. The beast typically cloaks its true predatory and evil nature in the fine clothes of the idealistic and aspirational language it uses to target two types of human prey with its seduction. The first target is an able type person who is humble and innocent, like Eve before the fall. These good people are sincerely concerned about injustices in the world and are looking for a real solution to human suffering. They are often willing to sacrifice for the stated ideals of socialism and communism, committing their time and resources to the cause of creating a better world. Most of the naturally idealistic young people drawn to leftist movements are of this type. As Whitaker Chambers, one of America's most famous ex-communists and the former head of a network of Soviet spies, explained, and I quote, they feel a great intellectual concern, at least, for recurring economic crisis, the problem of war, which in our lifetime has assumed an atrocious proportion, and which weighs on them. What shall I do? At that crossroads, the evil thing, communism, lies in wait for them with a simple answer." End quote. The second target of the beast is a Cain-type person who is arrogant and power-seeking, and who, like Lucifer, is willing to sacrifice others, Lucifer's targets were Adam and Eve, on the altar of his own lust and ambition. These people are resentful and bitter about their lives and blame others for their own problems. Their thirst for vengeance can lead them to murder. The primary attraction of socialist or communist revolutions and regimes for these people is that they offer a pathway to gaining power and wreaking vengeance on those they blame for depriving them of their due in life. These are the Lenins, Stalins, Maos, Pol Pots. They are the leaders of violent revolutions, and once in power, they become part of the dictatorship of the proletariat, oppressing others and turning socialist states into totalitarian regimes that will never relinquish their power willingly. The first type often comes to realize that they have been seduced and taken advantage of by communist leaders of the second type who do not share their idealism, but exploit them as useful idiots. In this circumstance, the first type can easily become disillusioned by the reality of communism, leave the movement or party, or start to oppose the regime. It is the first type that interests us in this chapter. At this point in history, when we know so much about the wretched record of socialism and communism, 
It is important to understand why good people end up committing themselves to evil enterprises. What is it about Marxism that attracts them? What is it that eventually disillusions them? And how can one avoid the pain of committing to a cause that is later shown to be based on false promises and must therefore be abandoned? For more than a century now, tens if not hundreds of millions of people, many of them well educated and deeply concerned about the problems of humankind, have been drawn to the Marxist and neo-Marxist prescriptions for the world's ills and lured into religious-type devotion by the left's promises to create an earthly utopia. For example, the Americans who in the last century signed up to betray their country in the belief that they were serving the higher purposes of world communism were typically well-educated and came from good homes. Many graduated from Ivy League universities and had excellent jobs in government and industry yet they voluntarily gave their allegiance to Moscow. The young people who today participate in riots and various forms of violence on America's streets are also typically students or graduates who come from middle-class or wealthy homes. They clearly believe that they are literally fighting for good and just causes. It should be noted that while the Communist Party USA is now aligned with Beijing rather than Moscow and continues a tradition of slavish servitude to the most powerful dictatorship on earth. Most espionage for China by Americans today is based on the seduction of money, not participating in a communist Chinese utopia. Nevertheless, the American left seems always eager to praise the PRC for its wonderful infrastructure and superior management of society. They also encourage the strengthening of US-China relations, echoing the tired and long discredited moral equivalency arguments used in the last century to justify detente with the Soviet Union. A new section, the problem of blind faith and delayed consequences. The problem with communist and postmodernist promises of a better world is that it usually takes decades for believers to realize they have been duped. Thus, while today many critical theories are offered to young people as fresh solutions to long-standing social ills, the full consequences of the implementation of these theories will remain shrouded into an indeterminate future. This makes it all too easy for often idealistic people to be lured into devoting themselves to radical leftist agendas that promise positive change for society and the world. And indeed, the zeal of the left can only be understood as blind faith in utopian promises, promises that time will show can never be fulfilled. For those making the promises, the delay in their realization can always be explained away by blaming the entrenched institutions that the revolution is seeking to overthrow as being too resistant to change. Faith in the promise of a better or even ideal future is, of course, not unique to leftists. It is a feature of our original nature, which is endowed by the Creator with the desire for perfection, the achievement of a state of personal fulfillment, harmonious relations with others and nature, as well as ideal societies of peace and love. Religion promises to fulfill this desire by leading believers to paradise, the kingdom of heaven, or nirvana. Marxist and neo-Marxist theories exploit this innate human desire by promising their own versions of utopia, making them pseudo-religious ideologies. For any system of belief, faith is a powerful motivator, but with the science and knowledge available to us now, there is no excuse for blind faith regardless of its basis. For those on the left, there's really no good excuse for claiming ignorance of the likely outcome of Marxist and neo-Marxist theories and programs. As we will elaborate in chapters 14 through 16, critical theories, whether the Frankfurt or postmodernist schools, are direct descendants of the Marxist dialectic. As such, their outcome is highly predictable. A new section learning the lessons of the past. 
With this in mind, it is instructive to look at the last century for defining examples of people who were captivated by the ideals and promises of Marxism and devoted their lives to the Marxist cause, but ultimately realized they were contributing to a monstrosity, a global empire built on the suffering and blood of hundreds of millions of people. Nevertheless, even after disillusionment set in, especially at times like the signing of the Nazi-Soviet Pact in 1939 and Khrushchev's 1956 revelations of Stalin's reign of terror, many ex-communists clung to their Marxist beliefs while criticizing certain leaders and regimes for failing to implement the theory correctly. In other words, they failed to recognize that the evil they abhorred was not an aberration of communism, but an inevitable consequence of its practice. New section. France. Profound disenchantment. Only a few of the disillusioned communists publicly profess contrition for having likely been responsible for leading well-intentioned people into hell. One who did was Frenchman André Guide, who lived from 1869 to 1951, and was perhaps Europe's foremost author in the first half of the last century. He became an avid communist and a believer in the Soviet Union as an ideal state. That was until he actually visited the country in 1936 and saw the wretched lives of most Soviet citizens, lives that his government hosts tried to hide from him. Later he remembered his earlier enchantment with the USSR, and I quote, some years ago I wrote of my love and admiration for the Soviet Union, where an unprecedented experiment was being attempted, the thought of which inflamed my heart with expectation and from which I hoped a tremendous advance, an impulse capable of sweeping along the whole of humanity. It was certainly worthwhile to be alive at such a moment, to be able to witness this rebirth and to give one's whole life to further it. In my heart, I bound myself resolutely in the name of future culture to the fortunes of the Soviet Union. Far more than the country of my choice, an example and an inspiration, it represented what I had always dreamed of but no longer dared to hope. It was something toward which all my longing was directed. It was a land where I imagined utopia was in process of becoming reality. End quote. As a man of considerable influence, why else would the Soviets have rolled out a thick red carpet for him? Gide realized that he had responsibility to warn his readers of the mistake he had made. Referring to a speech he had given in Russia describing the USSR in glowing terms, he said, and I quote, This speech belonged to the early part of my visit, to the time when I still believed still had the naivete to believe that one could seriously discuss questions of culture with the Russians. I wish that I could still believe it. If I was mistaken at first, it is only right that I should recognize my error as soon as possible, because I am responsible for those at home who my opinions might lead astray. No personal pride must hinder me. I have little in any case. There are matters far more important than myself and my personal pride, more important than the Soviet Union. The future of humanity and the fate of its culture are at stake." Gide was one of the most articulate critics of communism after he saw the light. There are many others who have added to his insights. The accounts following may seem more numerous than necessary but by invoking examples from America, Germany, Italy and elsewhere, the point is made that communism has a truly global appeal. It is hoped that those now promoting leftist theories and activism, or contemplating doing so, will consider these lessons from the past relevant to the here and now. A new section. America, a romance sours. Founded in 1921, the Communist Party USA was created through the merger of two rival communist parties established in 1919 that were inspired by the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution in Russia.
a membership organization requiring dues. CPUSA never topped 20,000 members until 1933, when President Franklin Delano Roosevelt established diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union for the first time, thereby normalizing communism as just another system of government. By 1939, the CPUSA membership had surged to 69,000. It then started to decline, thanks to the Nazi-Soviet Pact of August that year, which disillusioned many members. Everyone on the left seemed to agree that Hitler and the Nazis were bad, and fascism had to be opposed by the world. Membership growth recovered when the United States and Russia became allies against Hitler in 1941, peaking at 75,000 in 1947. The CPUSA's aims included establishing Soviet America by spreading the ideas of Marxism-Leninism and helping, through its underground apparatus, Soviet espionage agencies, including the GRU, the military intelligence, and precursors of the KGB. When Whitaker Chambers, a 1920s convert to communism, in 1939 revealed the existence of Soviet spy networks in America to FDR through his advisor Adolf Berl, there was little if any official interest shown and no action was taken. This official disinterest at the highest levels of the US government continued throughout FDR's time in office and even after his death in 1945. President Harry Truman famously called congressional investigations into Soviet espionage a red herring designed to disguise a partisan political agenda. However, by the time Elizabeth Bentley, an American running an extensive network of Soviet agents, recanted her treachery and in 1945 went to the FBI to report what she knew, Concern for the extent of Soviet penetration of sensitive U.S. agencies was beginning to grow among some official circles in Washington. As World War II came to an end and Stalin's brutal occupation of East and Central European countries made a lie of his declared peaceful and democratic intentions for post-war Europe, public opinion in America began to turn against communism. Hearings by the House Un-American Activities Committee took on new life, and the FBI under anti-communist J. Edgar Hoover began to more actively pursue communist agents and spies in the U.S. government, in the Manhattan Project, and in various other arenas. This work was assisted by a secret project named Venona, which was started in 1943 to decrypt Soviet cables sent between Moscow and Moscow's agents in the United States. Finally declassified in 1995, these cable transcripts corroborate the revelations of Chambers and Bentley and reveal the extent of Stalin's duplicitous relations with his most important ally in the war against Hitler. They also make it clear that the CPUSA was intimately involved in providing agents to the Soviet spy networks. Over 300 Soviet agents have been identified as having worked actively for Moscow in the 1930s, 1940s and 1950s. Dozens were in sensitive government positions, including the White House, State Department, Treasury Department, the World War II Office of War Information and Office of Strategic Service, later the Central Intelligence Agency. Remarkably, while many government officials kept their membership in the CPUSA secret to avoid detection and likely firing, they faithfully paid their party dues through their handlers. Among the most prominent agents exposed by Chambers and Bentley was Alger Hiss, a Harvard Law graduate who held several senior government posts. While at the State Department, he attended Yalta with Foreign Secretary Edward Stethinus and FDR, and later played a leading role in the establishment of the United Nations. On his way back from Yalta, he stopped in Moscow, where he received a high Soviet decoration for his service to the USSR. His steadfastly denied ever being a member of the CPUSA and a Soviet agent, but due to massive evidence of his treachery, he was convicted of perjury in 1950 
and sentenced to five years in federal prison. Another notable Soviet agent was Harry Dexter White, a Stanford graduate in economics and a top official at the Treasury Department who would play a leading role at Bretton Woods, helping shape the post-war global financial system. He became the first U.S. director of the International Monetary Fund. Several agents provided information about the top-secret World War II Manhattan Project to build a nuclear weapon. The most famous, but likely not the most important, were Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Several members of the network testified that they were spies for Moscow, confirmed by Venona Cables, but the Rosenbergs never admitted their guilt and never recanted their treachery. They were executed in 1953, the only Soviet spies to the U.S. to face that fate. For many Americans drawn to communism during this period, party membership and political beliefs were entwined with personal, even romantic, emotions and aspirations. For example, a key couple in the Rosenberg spy network were Ethel's brother David Greenglass and his wife Ruth. As described in Venona, Decoding Soviet Espionage in America, by John Earl Haynes and Harvey Clare, and I quote, David and Ruth Greenglass were both fervent communists who had joined the Young Communist League as teenagers. After David entered the army, the young soldier's letters to his bride mixed declarations of love and longing with equally ardent professions of loyalty to Marxism-Leninism. One letter declared, Victory shall be ours, and the future is socialism's. Another letter looked to the end of the war, when, in quote, we will be together to build, under socialism, our future, end quote. In yet another letter, David wrote of his proselytizing for communism among his fellow soldiers. He wrote, Darling, we who understand can bring understanding to others because we are in love and have our Marxist outlook. And in a June 1944 letter, he reconciled his communist faith with the violence of the Soviet regime, again quoting, Darling, I have been reading a lot of books on the Soviet Union. Dear, I can see how far-sighted and intelligent those leaders are. They are really geniuses, every one of them. I have come to a stronger and more resolute faith in and belief in the principles of socialism and communism. I believe that every time the Soviet government used force, they did so with pain in their hearts and the belief that what they were doing was to produce good for the greater number. More power to the Soviet Union and a fruitful and abundant life for their peoples. In 1935, a CPUSA spokesman wrote that Stalin Unquote, has directed the building of socialism in a manner to create a rich, colorful, many-sided cultural life among 100 nationalities differing in economic development, language, history, customs, tradition, but united in common work for a beautiful future. He is a world leader whose every advice to every party of the Comintern on every problem is correct, clear, balanced and points the way to new, more decisive class battles." End quote. This loyalty to communism and to Moscow and Stalin in particular is inexplicable without remembering that Marxism exerts a religion-like pull on many of its adherents, making them truly blind to reality, as we have noted above. They believed in its veracity and they looked to it for purpose in life. They excused the bloodshed and torture by the Soviet leadership, including Stalin himself, and they accepted his justifications for brutal purges and the incarceration of millions of innocent Soviet citizens as necessary steps towards establishing the communist ideal. Apparently, these loyalists were unable to grasp the meaning of millions of people being killed or imprisoned and many millions more being starved to death. The extent of Stalin's terror would not become widely known until 1956, but there were enough reports to know that Stalin was exacting a very high price in human suffering to build socialism. 
This faith in the communist movement and childlike trust in Uncle Joe Stalin is reflected tellingly in one of the Venona cables sent to Moscow by Ishak Akhmarov, the spy chief in the United States during much of World War II. He reports that the head of one of the most significant spy networks in Washington, Robert Silvermaster, was delighted with Moscow's decision to give him an award and a book. He wrote, Robert is sincerely overjoyed and profoundly satisfied with the reward given him in accordance with your instructions. As he says, his work for us is the one good thing he has done in his life. He emphasized that he did not take this only as a personal honor, but also as an honor to his group. He wants to see the reward and the book." End quote. New section. Disillusionment deepens. In 1935, Vivian Gornick was born into a working-class family of Ukrainian emigres in New York. In her book, The Romance of American Communism, she describes how her communist parents and many of their friends and colleagues would gather in a home to speak eagerly about the movement of the international workers they believed the Communist Party represented. They were excited to be party members. It gave them a religious-like sense of purpose in life. They thought the party could do no wrong, that Marx was a messianic figure for the workers, and that Stalin was a great and wise leader of the masses. Gornick writes, and I quote, What I remember most deeply about the communists is their passion. It was passion that converted them, passion that held them, passion that lifted them up and then twisted them down. Each and every one of them experienced a kind of inner radiance, some intensity of illumination that tore at the soul." End quote. However, in February 1956, Nikita Khrushchev gave an earth-shattering speech to the 20th Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in which he condemned Stalin for creating a personality cult and conducting massive purges in a reign of terror. This revelation destroyed the communist myth, at least as far as Stalin was concerned. Although initially given in secret, the text would soon be known, and it sent shockwaves throughout the Soviet Union and around the communist world. That wave hit the United States when the New York Times published a shortened version of the text in June that year. Gornick reports the devastating effect of these revelations on her family and friends. They said to themselves, for this, have we sunk to this? Those who are dead, those who are dying in prison, have sacrificed themselves for this? She adds, overnight, the effective life of the Communist Party in this country came to an end. Within weeks of the report's publication, 30,000 people left the party. Within a year, the party was as it had been in its 1919 beginning, a small sect off the American political map." Gornick noted that the hopes and dreams of dedicated communists were shattered in a way, and I quote, that can be understood only, perhaps, by those who have loved deeply and suffered the crippling loss of that love." End quote. By the end of the 1950s, membership had cratered. The bitterness was deep because the expectations had been so great. For decades, the communist faithful had been fed lies about Stalin and the glorious future he was building in the Soviet Union. Gornick's book is based on a series of interviews she conducted in the 1970s with some of those active in the Communist Party USA in the 1930s, 1940s, and 1950s. Most looked back on their days in the party as the most important chapters in their lives. They had experienced purpose, camaraderie, discipline in the party. They believed they were building a new world. Diana Vincent was a successful actress who had joined the Communist Party USA in 1941 and remained in it for 12 years. She told Gornick, and I quote, they were good years, very good years, rich, alive with a sense of everything coming together, a fusion of world and being that made you drunk with life, and the bond created through work done in comradeship, 
What a powerful bond that is. I never understood that properly until the Communist Party, end quote. One of the most thoughtful ex-party members interviewed by Gornick was Anthony Ehrenpreis. He put his experience in the CPUSA into historical perspective. I quote, For myself, it was the best life a man could have had. I feel that as a communist, I have lived at the heart of my times. The most problematic sense of a man's life is embodied in the history of 20th century communism. It was through communism that, in our time, one could grapple most fiercely with what it means to be a human being. 400 years ago, it was through Christian doctrine and the politics of the church. But in our time, it was without question through Marxism and the Communist Party. For my money, it still is." End quote. Still a believer, Aaron Price is comparing the rise of communism with the Protestant Reformation of 400 years earlier. And indeed, it was exactly 400 years from Martin Luther's 95 Theses of 1517 to the Russian Revolution in 1917. But to think that communism could be the natural heir of Protestantism or of Christian renewal in general reveals the power of Marxism-Leninism to win hearts and minds and to hold on to them despite mountains of evidence proving the theory wrong and the source of immeasurable suffering. Disenchantment with the party came through various means. For some it was the Kafkaesque disciplinary hearings in which a member faced a court of peers who sat in judgment over some infraction of party discipline. Colleagues would turn into accusers as brotherhood was transformed into dictatorship. For many, it was the Khrushchev speech in 1956. But strangely, few blamed the ideology itself for the sins of communism. It was as if the religion of Marxism was sound, but the Church of Communism and its leaders, men like Lenin and Stalin, had unfortunately gone astray. This explains why, despite this disillusionment, Marxism and its offshoots continue to be able to tap into the intrinsic goodness and idealism of people, and the leftist faithful continue to believe that materialist ideas are the key to building an earthly utopia. A new section, Germany, waking up with Leah. Arthur Kussler, who lived from 1905 to 1983, was one of the most articulate writers to go through a powerful conversion to communism, a painful awakening to its reality and final disillusionment. A Hungarian by birth, he joined the German Communist Party in 1931. As with so many good people of that time, he was preoccupied with the rise of fascism under Hitler. It was a confusing period politically. The three main political forces in Germany during the early 1930s were all socialist, the ruling Social Democratic Party, or the SPD, the rising National Socialist German Workers' Party, or the Nazi Party, and the Communist Party of Germany, the KPD. Kustler saw the KPD as the only party capable of taking on the Nazis and fascism. In the book, The God That Failed, he explains his conversion to communism, and I quote, Even by a process of pure elimination, the communists, with a mighty Soviet Union behind them, seemed the only force capable of resisting the onrush of the primitive horde with its swastika totem. But it was not by a process of elimination that I became a communist. I began for the first time to read Marx, Engels and Lenin in earnest. By the time I had finished with Feuerbach and State and Revolution, something had clicked in my brain which shook me like a mental explosion. To say that one had seen the light is a poor description of the mental rapture which only the convert knows, regardless of what faith he has been converted to. The new light seemed to pour from all directions across the skull. The whole universe falls into patterns like the stray pieces of a jigsaw puzzle assembled by magic at one stroke. There is now an answer to every question. Doubts and conflicts are a matter of the tortured past, a past already remote, which one had lived in dismal ignorance in the tasteless, colorless world 
of those who don't know. Nothing henceforth can disturb the converse inner peace and serenity, except the occasional fear of losing faith again, losing thereby what alone makes life worth living, and falling back into the outer darkness, where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. This may explain how communists, with eyes to see and brains to think with, can still act in subjective bona fides, Anno Domini 1941. At all times and in all creeds, only a minority has been capable of courting excommunication and committing emotional harakiri in the name of abstract truth. Kuster would lose his job as an editor in the leading publishing house in Germany after they found he was passing information to the KPD, but by that time he anyway wanted to devote himself completely to the party. He even offered to go to the Soviet Union as a much-needed tractor driver. He watched as the Comintern insisted that the KPD call the SPD socialist fascists and went it alone in the critical 1933 national elections rather than aligning with the SPD to defeat the Nazis. At the time, Stalin was most afraid of an invasion by Japan and the KPD campaigned with the idiotic slogan I quote, the defense of the Chinese proletariat against the aggression of the Japanese pirates, end quote. The Comintern's insistence that the KPD use this slogan demonstrates the extent to which Moscow tried to control world communism and the inevitable limitations of this incarnation of central planning. Kustler learned to set aside his own rational criticism of communist thinking and policies in pursuit of becoming like a proletarian himself, the almost mythical communist ideal of a plain-spoken worker. He says, we crave to become single and simple-minded. Intellectual self-castration was a small price to pay for achieving some likeness to comrade Ivan Ivanovich, a Russian John Doe, in this case a proletarian, end quote. He accepted that his was mechanistic thinking that he should abandon in favor of the far more productive dialectical thinking of the party, which could explain all contradictions between word and action, including moronic party decisions. I quote again, Gradually, I learned to distrust my mechanistic preoccupations with facts and to regard the world around me in the light of dialectical interpretation. It was a blissful state. Once you had abandoned the technique, you were no longer disturbed by facts. They automatically took on the proper color and fell into their proper place. Both morally and logically, the party was infallible. Morally, because its aims were right, that is, in accord with the dialectic of history. And these aims justified all means. Logically, because the party was the vanguard of the proletariat, and the proletariat the embodiment of the active principle in history." End quote. The ability of intelligent and well-educated people like Kessler to trust in the party that so clearly made decisions that defied all reason and logic is echoed today in the willingness of educated young people to vest their trust in radical movements based on nothing more than the promise that those movements are doing the right thing and fighting for a better world. Once they accept the ideology as true, it is very easy for the leftist faithful to accept that the owners of that ideology are trustworthy leaders whose wisdom is not to be questioned. After the KPD, that is the German Communist Party, committed political suicide by spurning the ruling SPD in 1933, it was forced to go underground in the face of Nazi suppression. At this point, Kersler finally got a visa to his beloved Soviet Union, where he spent a year traveling much of his vast territory, ostensibly to write a book on the wonders of the current five-year plan. Even employing dialectical thinking, he could barely explain away the disastrous reality he witnessed. He would write, and I quote, My faith had been badly shaken, but thanks to the elastic shock absorbers of dialectical thinking, I was slowed in becoming conscious of the damage." Quote. 
he found a renewed reason to believe when in 1934 the Comintern introduced the new Popular Front for Peace and Against Fascism. This reversed the policy of rejecting and condemning rival movements on the left and advocated for a united front against the common enemy of fascism. For Kessler, this was a second honeymoon with the party, as he said. It wouldn't last. Like so many other starry-eyed communists of that time, he went to Spain to support the anti-Franco effort, but became disillusioned after being captured and imprisoned. In prison, he daily expected to be shot and naturally feared the torture that might precede death. He came to see his fellow inmates as individuals who did not fit into the Marxist classist categories. He realized, and I quote, that man is a reality, mankind an abstraction, that end justifies the means only within very narrow limits, that ethics is not a function of social utility, and charity not a petty bourgeois sentiment, but the gravitational force which keeps civilization in its orbit. Yet every single one of these trivial statements was incompatible with the communist faith which I held." End quote. It is worth noting that another leftist who famously became disenchanted with communism by his experiences in the Spanish Civil War was George Orwell. He went to fight fascism in Spain in 1936, joining the Workers' Party of Marxist Unification, or PUM, in Barcelona. He became aware of the real nature of communism when pro-Soviets accused PUM of collaborating with the fascists and then labeled it a Trotskyist organization, the ultimate Stalinist smear of a rival on the left at that time. On returning to England, Orwell would write Animal Farm in 1984, two hugely popular novels that brilliantly expose communism, and Stalinism in particular, as a totalitarian ideology. He became a good friend of Kessler and greatly admired Darkness at Noon, Kessler's novel about Stalin's oppression of fellow party members for its authenticity and insights. After Spain, Kessler still didn't make a break with the Communist Party, although Stalin's purges, which destroyed the lives of many he had known to be dedicated communists, further eroded his faith in communism. He observed, and I quote, at no time and in no country have more revolutionaries been killed and reduced to slavery than in Soviet Russia, end quote. Even so, when he formally resigned from the Central Committee of the German Communist Party, he still clung to the communist dream. He later reflected on his resignation letter, I quote, I stated my opposition to the system, to the cancerous growth of the bureaucracy, the suppression of civil liberties. But I profess my belief that the foundations of the workers' and peasants' state had remained unshaken, that the nationalization of the means of production was a guarantee of her eventual return to the road of socialism and that, in spite of everything, the Soviet Union still represented our last and only hope on a planet in rapid decay." End quote. The last straw for Kessler, as for many other wavering communists, came with the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact of August 23, 1939. Protected by this agreement from Soviet military reaction to its aggression to the East, on September 1, 1939, Nazi Germany invaded Poland, and World War II was launched in earnest. In closing the saga of his romance with communism, Kessler compared his seven years in the party to Jacob's seven years laboring for his uncle Laban in Haran to win Laban's daughter Rachel as a wife. He says, When the time was up, the bride was led into his dark tent. Only the next morning did he discover that his ardours had been spent, not on the lovely Rachel, but on the ugly Leah. A new section, Italy, too many betrayals. At age 17, Ignacio Siloni, who lived from 1900 to 1978, joined the Italian Socialist Party, rising to become a leader. 
1921, he co-founded the breakaway Communist Party of Italy, the PCI. Later known for his anti-fascist novels, he would play a leading role in the PCI and the Moscow-based Comintern. It was in dealing personally with Stalin and other Russian leaders that he experienced duplicity and profound prejudice against non-Russian communists. After voicing these criticisms, in 1930 he was ejected from the PCI. In 1949 he reflected on his time in the Socialist and Communist parties in Italy. I quote, For me, to join the party of proletarian revolution was not just a simple matter of signing up with a political organization. It meant a conversion, a complete dedication. The party became family, school, church, barracks. The world that lay beyond it was to be destroyed and built anew. The psychological mechanism whereby each single militant becomes progressively identified with the collective organization is the same as that used in certain religious orders and military colleges with almost identical results. Every sacrifice was welcomed as a personal contribution to the price of collective redemption. And it should be emphasized that the links which bound us to the party grew steadily firmer, not in spite of the dangers and sacrifices involved, but because of them. This explains the attraction exercised by communism on certain categories of young men and women, on intellectuals, and on highly sensitive and generous people who suffer most from the wastefulness of bourgeois society. Anyone who thinks he can wean the best and most serious-minded young people away from communism by enticing them into a well-warmed hall to play billiards starts from an extremely limited and unintelligent conception of mankind." End quote. Observing the situation of workers in Russia, Silone noted, most of the much-vaunted rights of the working class were purely theoretical, end quote. However, despite his sharp observations on the many failings of Soviet communism, his departure from the party was wrenching. I quote again, The truth is this, the day I left the Communist Party was a very sad one for me. It was like a day of deep mourning, the mourning for my lost youth, end quote. A new section, The Religious Allure of Communism. Religion has the power to motivate people to sacrifice themselves for a higher cause because the ultimate reward is the kingdom of heaven, a state of enduring peace and happiness. The essence of the communist lie is that it promises an alternative, atheistic path to a similar destination, a path that leads through violent revolution and a dictatorship of the proletariat to a communist utopia. Animated by that belief, Communists have been willing to sacrifice themselves for their cause while often practicing deception or committing atrocities along the way. Most of the Americans who spied for Russia did so without monetary compensation. In fact, they secretly paid dues to the CPUSA to hide their political affiliation while they held sensitive positions in the US government. Stalin killed millions and imprisoned tens of millions Yet at his death, many millions in the USSR and abroad wept, including many of the Gulag inmates. At his funeral, the crowds were so enormous that several hundred people were crushed to death. A naive 31-year-old Andrei Sakharov, who was one of the USSR's leading nuclear scientists before becoming a famous dissident, was caught up in the moment, writing to his wife, I quote, I am under the influence of a great man's death. I am thinking of his humanity." End quote. Later, he would admit, quote, It was years before I fully understood the degree to which deceit, exploitation, and outright fraud were inherent in the Stalinist system. End quote. As we have shown, the path leading to enchantment with Marxism and communism followed by disillusionment and revulsion for what communism does, is well-trodden. It is similar to the disillusionment with religion that follows unethical behavior 
by ecclesiastical leaders. Both experiences can be bitter. The real difference lies in the fact that Marxism has not a single example to show of good results produced by its application. Religion, however, has a rich history of virtuous activity that produces undeniable benefits for people. For those who might entertain the notion that scrapping religion in favor of Marxism is a good idea, the message is clear. Marxism and its offshoots are not a solution to the problems and suffering of the world. They have made the world's many ills infinitely worse. A new section, a remarkable resurgence of socialism. Remarkably, seven decades after Khrushchev's speech, the popularity of socialism is on the rise in America and elsewhere, once more attracting those too young to know its true legacy. A 2020 Gallup poll showed that 39% of Americans have a positive view of socialism. Among millennials and Gen Zers, this number rises to 59%. Among baby boomers, however, only 32% have a favorable view. Gallup attributes these high numbers to the popularity of self-professed American socialist political leaders, notably Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and New York Representative Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, both of whom deceptively, ignorantly, referenced Scandinavia rather than the Soviet Union, Communist China or Venezuela as models of socialism that they are advocating. This is a stunning result. It proves that socialism and communism have continued their march through various educational and cultural institutions, as well as political parties, despite the disastrous record of Marxism around the world. As in the past, the destiny of the current generation of young people who are tempted by the allure of leftist promises will be determined by their ability to see through the deception and recognize the reality of what the left has to offer. The seduction of the Marxist and critical theory myths will continue to snare those who fail to approach the proffered utopia with a rigorously critical and questioning mind. Ultimately, only a comprehensive and compelling alternative to Marxism and neo-Marxism, based on transcendent principles and values, will be able to debunk these bankrupt theories and replace them with a compelling and durable alternative. End chapter.